You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you. You can find Mark chapter 5, actually, on page 839. I want to ask you, as you're turning there, what is the mindset that you have right now? What is your mindset? What is your expectation for the next 45 minutes or so that we're going to spend together? And maybe as I even read through this passage, you will identify it as a story that you've heard before. You might have even heard sermons on this passage before. You might be very familiar with it. Others of you might have a MacArthur Study Bible or an ESV Study Bible, and you have all the notes right there for you. And so instead of listening, you're going to just want the information right there at your fingertips. Or maybe there are others of you that will just be distracted by the events of your life, and you'll not be engaging with what the Holy Spirit has for you. You see, every time his word is opened, every time you read it, every time it is preached before you, it is an opportunity and a gift for you personally to engage. And the promise of God's word is that if you engage, he has something for you to learn that he expects you to transition into living. And so I pray that's your mindset. If not, this is hopefully the opportunity for you to recalibrate. But we have in this passage a most fascinating story that I believe will have relevance to your life. When I was growing up, people would tell me, Jeff, you are so good with kids. And I don't know what it is about kids. I enjoyed playing with them. I enjoyed uh, babysitting them and making them laugh. I loved kids. And the more I got to spend time with kids, the more I enjoyed the expectation of one day having them. And I will tell you, it has been better than I ever expected Being a parent of these three wonderful girls is just the greatest privilege, other than being married to my wife, that I have. But as I was a new parent, I realized very quickly in the weeks and months that unfolded, I realized things like, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. It doesn't matter how many books you read. It doesn't matter how many blogs you have read. It doesn't matter how much you think you're going to be different than your parents. You realize very quickly, or at least you should, that you don't have a clue what you're doing. I realized very quickly that you cannot protect your kids 24 hours a day. I learned very quickly that you are okay with giving your kids to somebody who hasn't washed their hands 20 times before they hold her. Now I digress, but another thing that I realized is that it is very important as a young parent to invest in a good clothes washer. And so my wife and I did that. In fact, we were looking at all of the different cycles and and the different features. And one of the features that we learned very quickly is important is the sanitizer cycle. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with this or you've seen the button and you've never pressed it, what it does is it raises the temperature so high that it actually kills all the microorganism. It takes the spit-up clothes and the accident clothes and actually makes them reusable, which for all young parents who have very little to no margin financially, that is important. But what I didn't realize is that there is this whole branch of parenting that is called blowouts. One night in particular, and I will not use the name to protect the innocent, but one night in particular, my wife and I were awakened to cries, and so we, you know, do what young parents do. We triaged that thing and that girl, 
And we ran into the room, and immediately I saw that my daughter had chosen to exercise her artistic talents by painting the entire room in poop. And now as a parent, my first responsibility was to make sure she was comforted, make sure she was safe. But then as a penny-pinching dad, I'm surveying the landscape and I'm thinking, okay, what can we save? Okay, we can save the bedding. We can save the bed frame, thank God. But those clothes, you know, there's no sanitizer cycle that was going to save those. And so those clothes were sent to Clothes Heaven. They have never returned again. But I think that illustration might summarize some of you spiritually. I think there might be some of you that whether it's the pain of your past, it's the sins of the past, or maybe right now you're, you're squirming because you're thinking of the way that you're, that you're thinking and that you're speaking and that you're living and you recognize that that does not align with what God's design is. It does not align with what will most glorify Christ. And you're sitting here thinking, I am a person of spiritual blowouts beyond cleansing. Or maybe there's others of you that are sitting here and you're thinking, okay, that's those people. I I know I've been forgiven. I know I've been cleansed, but I've never had spiritual blowouts. And so for all of us, friends, this passage is for us. It's going to do two things. It's going to educate us to our spiritual unclean. And it's also going to point us to the one who is the ultimate sanitizer cycle and can cleanse any spiritual blowout. So let me read our passage, and then we'll dive in together. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when they had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces." No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been, had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid." And those who had seen it described it to them and what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man had been possessed by demons, begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them 
how much the Lord has done for you and how he has shown mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. An amazing passage. Let's dive in together. The the sentence of our outline is really the three points of our outline, but friend, I would just tell you that the path to cleansing is the entire sentence. And so we're going to break the sentence into three parts because the passage breaks it into three parts. And you might be tempted to want to run ahead to what's the solution? What do I need to do? But let's live in the tension of the three-part sentence to be able to understand what it is we must need to do to be cleansed. Number one, no matter how unclean, dot, dot, dot. No matter how unclean. Let's get our bearings and recalibrate. So for some of you, this might be your first sermon here at Ascend. This might be your first study with us in the Gospel of Mark. For others of you, you might have been away. Let's remind ourselves, what are the Gospels in the New Testament? Well, first of all, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are defined as the synoptic Gospels. These are Gospels that carry a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same wording. So the temptation is, is that we study these in harmony. In fact, there's even Bibles that are provided for us that have the Gospels side by side so that you can see the similarities and the differences, and there's value in that. But the reason why I haven't emphasized the other accounts of the Gospels is because each Gospel writer has a purpose that they are writing. What's interesting is that Mark is usually brief in his stories. He's usually very quick. In fact, remember, the the whole series is entitled the vistas of Christ. And so Mark is going to run past the details and the stories of Jesus' life, and he's going to go back into the Old Testament, and they're going to be these picket fences like you're flying down the highway, zip, 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 zip. And then every once in a while, he'll stop at a rest stop and say, okay, this about Jesus, and he'll explain it, and then zip, 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 zip. He'll stop at another vista, another lookout point. But what's interesting about this story is that Matthew's same account We'll use only 150, 135 words for this story. Whereas Mark will spend 330 words in this story. There's a reason for that. Mark is progressing his explanation of who Jesus is. He's progressing the plan that God has for redemptive history. He's escalating things. He's bringing to our attention what is referred to as the messianic secret. Would you write that down? This is something scholars constantly refer to, but it is the part of Jesus' ministry where he was keeping things a secret. In fact, remember, when Jesus had healed people in the first three chapters, he would tell them, don't go tell anyone. In fact, in Mark 4, when he was teaching, he taught people through what? Through parables, which is it was intended to keep hidden for the masses who Jesus really was. But on the side, he would explain to his disciples the mysteries of the kingdom. You see, the mysteries of the kingdom were the messianic secret that Jesus was not ready to publicly declare. The mysteries of the kingdom are that it is at hand. That Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, that the kingdom would be comprised of Jew and Gentile, one people of God. The mysteries of the kingdom were that Jesus is the true Israel, 
that ethnic Israel was simply a placeholder in redemptive history. They were a shadow of the substance that Israel was supposed to point to. The mystery of Jesus, the secret of the Messiah, is that he would dwell within us through his Holy Spirit. And all of those realities would be explained as the New Testament unfolds. So with that background, that's where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 5. Look what it says in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea. I want to put a map up on the screen that will just help us get our bearings. Remember, we are in the 21st century. The Bible is written in a first century context. And so we must bridge that gap quite a bit to be able to understand the historical context, the geographical context, the grammatical context. And so this map will help us. It's a harp, like the instrument, harp-shaped sea. And what you had is you had three regions. Over here on the west side of the Sea of Galilee was a region called Galilee. On the east side was a region called the Decapolis. And on the top was a region called the Galanitis. Now, what was important about each one of these regions is their cultural emphasis. Galilee emphasized Jewishness or Israel. The Decapolis emphasized Hellenism or the Greeks and the Roman culture. The northeast area was a combination of both. And so this is the regions where Jesus had most of his ministry take place. And so when he comes to these areas, we must understand this cultural context. It's also interesting, you can see the Sea of Galilee was not massive. In fact, at its widest point, it was only eight miles wide. And so people on the shore could track a boat anywhere on the sea. That was important for Jesus' ministry. And so Jesus arrives at the other side, but what I want you to understand is that the Jews understood they were coming to a region that was unclean. This was a Gentile region. But what was going to confront them was even more uncleanness. In fact, it says in Luke 8, 27, that the man who was running toward Jesus had not worn clothes for a long time. Let your imagination, actually don't let your imagination... This naked man is running toward Jesus, and the disciples are wiping the sleepy out of their eyes because most likely the storm had taken place at night, and all of that had taken place where the disciples said, who is this man that controls even the wind and the seas? And they're, they're processing all of this, and they arrive at the shore, and greeting them is not a crowd, but a naked man who is bleeding, who has scars all over them, who is shrieking in a very odd and unexpected way. The Jews would have seen this and thought, unclean. Mark provides more details. He says that this man lived among the tombs. And Numbers 19.11 says the tombs and the, the areas of the dead were unclean religiously and ceremonially with the Jews. It says also that there will be uh, an unclean spirit in this man, and that in verse 12 there would be pigs, which all of these things are unclean. And then it tells us that the group, the people, the community of the Decapolis had tried to control him, had tried to suppress him by putting chains on his wrist, shackles on his ankles, and like a superhero, he just broke them. This is an impossible situation for someone to be cleansed. Or so the Jews might have thought. Would you write down Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 through 4? Listen to what Isaiah 65, 4 says. These people sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places and eat pig's flesh. Does that sound familiar? 
But, but that verse was written to Jews back in Isaiah's day. A group of people who God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek for me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. These individuals thought they were spiritually healthy, but they were unclean. And the point of the Isaiah passage is the same point of this passage, and that is that we must first acknowledge our uncleanness before we can be clean. You know, this whole passage is probably unfamiliar for us or unrelatable for us. I mean, we, we eat pig, right? I love my pepperoni pizza. This is not something that we need to live by. The, the laws in the Old Testament are, are not prescriptions for us because Christ has fulfilled the law. And so this is not something that we're familiar with. We are not beholden to this. But, but, but one piece of this story is something that I think is relatable to us today. Look what it says in verse 5. He was cutting himself with stones. And the most likely, the context here is that the man knew he was demon-possessed And in those times when he had his right mind, he was trying to get rid of the demons by by cutting them and trying to take them out. But cutting takes place today too, doesn't it? Cutting takes place in our community. It takes place even in our church. And at this point, you might say, well, pastor, these are topics we don't talk about in the church. These are topics that are very difficult to understand how somebody can get to a place where they think that cutting themselves will somehow provide relief. These are difficult circumstances that involve some intense counseling to get them to a place of help. And so, Pastor, we we don't talk about those things, but we should. I grew up in a church environment where the respectable sins were things that we all could agree could be forgiven. Things like not attending church on Wednesday nights. Things like women wearing pants. Things like little white lies. Those were things that while we recognized that they were not good, they could be forgiven. But as soon as you start getting into the area of the unmentionables, that's where Christians would start to say, I don't know. I don't know if that can be cleansed. Friend, the point of all of this is no matter how unclean you are. And before we get to the solution and the the very soap that will cleanse no matter how unclean you are, we, we must, again, live in the tension of this circumstance. The man was unclean because he had what inside of him? He had a demon. And let me just pause right here and say that demonic warfare and and demons is usually something in the church that has two extremes. In fact, we'll put a a quote up on the screen. This is from C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis says there are two equal and opposite errors when it comes to demons. Number one, we disbelieve in their existence. There are plenty of Christians that when the word demon comes up, they're like the Heisman. Keep it at arm's length. And then there are others, the second error is to believe and feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. That I found myself having this when I read Frank Peretti's book, This Present Darkness. And some people get so enamored with demons or so fearful of demons that they see demons behind every corner, behind every shadow, and they, they see the demon of lust and the demon of love, and that, that's not biblical. And so these two extremes are present. They might even be present in this room. Let's settle on the fact that demons exist. 
Let's settle on the fact that there is demonic warfare. But let's settle on the fact that demons nor the devil ever make you do something. In fact, I heard a story. Somebody came up to me and told me that Chuck Swindoll just mentioned this, so I didn't come up with this. But there was a little girl who had just come out of a horrific fight with her brother, and she had pulled his hair and kicked him in the shins. And her mom came up to her and said, why did you let the devil put it in your heart to pull your brother's hair and kick him in the shins? And the little girl thought, and she said, you know what? The devil might have made me pull his hair, but the shins were my thought. (laughs) Now we laugh, but I think there are a section of believers and even some of us who might not even know we're doing it that fall into this error that the devil makes us do things. That other people make us do things. That our past makes us do things. That our genetic disposition makes us do things. Let me use one that might hit close to some of your alcoholism. Yes, there might be a genetic disposition in your DNA, but you have control over it. And yes, you can get into alcohol and get to a certain point where it physiologically impacts you, where your body starts to think that you need alcohol, just like people who need caffeine. But the fact is, is you don't need it. The fact is, you have control over it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the devil never makes you do anything. Your DNA never makes you do anything. Your past, your present, other influences never make you do anything. That is a point that we can extract from this. But then second, the way we can understand our uncleanness is remembering passages like Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following after our own passions, pursuing our own lusts, following after the world system. Do you know that this world system is designed to appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? That's what it's designed to do. And God has allowed Satan a certain amount of freedom in this generation and in this period of creation to be able to create a world that appeals to these lusts. Let me give you an illustration. I got my PS5, PlayStation 5. Yes, I love gaming. And so last night, we got that thing out, and my daughter and I were playing. And it was so, let me tell you, the graphics on that thing, I was telling my girls, this is not your grandpa's Nintendo. Like, you're immersed in this, and we're playing, and I'm rooting for her, and she's rooting for me, and the the controller's vibrating, and, and my wife's like, hey, do you guys realize what time it is? You know, you do have to preach tomorrow. But here's the illustration. Is that some of these things that we can enjoy and that are not immoral in and of themselves can, if we're not careful, begin to eclipse our lenses. You see, the gospel gift to us is a perspective and a lens where we can see the valuable things in life for what they are. That we understand that the ultimate value is the things of God, the pursuits of Christ, getting closer to him, learning from him, and being enamored and worshipful with him. But it's very easy if we're not careful that the world system can sometimes cloud our view, can't it? So enjoy the PS5s. Enjoy the pizzas. Enjoy planting flowers. Enjoy the nice clothes. Enjoy whatever it is that this world has to offer, but don't expect more out of it than it was ever intended to give and never let it eclipse the true value and worship of Christ. 
Friends, this is who we are apart from Christ. And it isn't until we get to a place where we acknowledge our uncleanness that we are in a place where we can actually be cleansed. So the first part of the sentence is no matter how unclean, but then number two, Jesus can wash you clean. Jesus can wash you clean. Now listen, at this point, I want you to notice in the notes, there's a dot, dot, dot after that. Or if there's not, there should be. It's because in this, we can immediately want to run to, okay, what do I need to do? How do I get cleansed? And this is the way, this is the, the, the epicenter, but there's still more to the sentence. So let's live in the tension of the epicenter, and then we'll get to the solution. This is an impossible situation for the Jewish disciples, they might have thought for Jesus, this naked man streaking toward them, but he's compelled to do so. You ever ask questions of scripture? I mean, when you're reading the Bible, you, you should understand that to ask questions of scripture is actually appropriate, it's advisable, you'll learn a lot when you do this. I want to know, why is this man from a long distance away seeing this boat hit the shore and he's running toward him? Why? I mean, this is just a group of Jews that are coming over to Gentile territory in a fishing boat. What, what is significant about that? Mark doesn't tell us. But I think he gives us enough to allow us to be able to play out a scenario. I think there's two reasons. I think the demons were running toward Jesus because they were ready to attack him. I think they understood that their kingdom was being assaulted. In fact, write down Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, as I've been studying scripture, is one of the most important passages for us to understand the unseen realm. To understand that when we see the headlines in the news today... That there's something behind that, and this is what it is. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. That's a very interesting verse. It's one of those verses that if you're reading through the Bible, we probably skip ahead because what in the world does that mean? When you start breaking it apart, I think it's very clear. When was the time when God divided the peoples of this earth into nations? It was Genesis 11. Remember, God had given Noah and his family the instruction to be fruitful and multiply and do that where? Across the earth. But the people, after Noah, did not obey that. They settled in the east. They tried to create a, a city where they all would be, where they would make a name for themselves and build a tower that as high as they could make it, they thought that the higher you got, the more you became a god or like gods. So they actually were rebelling against God's plan, not being fruitful and multiply. So God said, I'm going to do it for you. Remember that? And he gave them different languages. But I think what Moses doesn't tell us in Genesis 11, he tells us here in Deuteronomy, and that is that as God separated the nations out, he also assigned sons of God or demons or angelic beings to be their inheritance. And that's why we see in Daniel, he talks about the prince of Tyre. These were spiritual beings that were assigned to these nations. And so, beloved, as we see all that's going on in the world, this is not outside of God's purview. This is all God's plan. And this global fascination with LGBTQ+, and with taking the design of God for the family and relegating it to, to dinosaur status. 
that this is actually behind the scenes, an unseen realm that is orchestrating this, though, all according to God's plan. That's the beauty of this Mark passage, is that nothing happens in the unseen realm or in the seen realm outside of God's control and outside of God's plan. But the demons, I believe, had all of this as their background. And so when they saw Jesus come on the shore, they weren't looking at the 13 people that were on the boat. They were looking at the Son of Man. And we'll see that in how they address him. But I also think the man was running toward Jesus. I think he probably was in the hillsides watching down at the Sea of Galilee, seeing this this storm come out from the Golan Heights, and he was seeing these boats being rocked. And I think he saw the waters get glassy still and realized something was different about that boat. The man and the demons run toward Jesus, and they fall on their face. And look at the question that the demon asks Jesus, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, notice that, what have you to do with me? These are singular terms. Jesus, son of the most high God. See, he knew who this Jesus is. He was there in Job 38, 7, when God created the stars, and he he celebrated with the other angels. This is an angelic being and beings, as we'll see right here, who knew who Jesus is, and they called him by his rightful title, the Son of God Most High. But then he says something in verse 7 that I wish I wasn't an expositor. If you're not familiar with that term, an expositor is somebody who preaches as the original author intended for the original audience. That takes work. There are concepts like this that are not easy to be able to understand. Verse 7 says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. What is this demon saying to Jesus? Do not torment me. Well, we'll see it here in just a few minutes where he says, do not send me out of this country. I think these demons knew what God's plan was from the beginning. You can write down Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 says that the lake of fire has been created for Satan and for his angels. I think that's why in James 2.19, when the demons are interacting with the God of the universe, they believe, they know who he is, and they tremble because they know their day is coming. And so I think the demon is saying here, is this my time? I don't want it to be my time. Do not torment me. And Jesus is going to show him it's not yet. I want to show you in verse 8 something that I think is intriguing. Verse 8 says, for he was saying to him. The Greek tense is imperfect. It implies repetition, which I think that's interesting. Because usually in the Gospels, we see that Jesus cast out demons with a word. They're gone. That's the end of it. But here, it looks like he's saying it over and over and over again. That's intriguing to me. Verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name, singular, is Legion. Legion is a term that was very familiar to the Jews of Jesus' day. These were the 6,000 units of soldiers in the Roman Empire. The imagery is like, from my picture, Star Wars, which if you haven't seen Star Wars, use May the 4th as your opportunity to introduce yourself to that. May the 4th be with you. But the end of Phantom Menace, which that's a whole other story of whether or not those should be in the canon, but I digress. At the end of that, there's all these clone troopers coming out of the ships. There are thousands and thousands of them, and they are ordered just perfectly, marching in rhythm. They are a formidable foe. It is impossible to imagine that the rebels are going to be able to defeat them. 
That's the imagery that the first century Jew would have had as they saw legion. This is not just a bunch of demons. This is representatives of the army of Satan in ordered pairs ready to attack this one man. That's the imagery, and the demon says, we are many. It's interesting. They are ready to attack Jesus. Jesus. I love teaching little kids in Sunday school. In seminary, I talked to my advisor. He said, hey, if you want to be a preacher, preach to four-year-olds. Because if you can teach four-year-olds and hold their attention, you can teach anybody. And I remember I would ask them, okay, let's review last week. Let's see if, like, are any of these seeds actually, are they germinating? And I would say, okay, let's talk about last week. Who? And the, Jesus, they're raising their hand. I didn't even ask the question. Jesus! It doesn't change much, though, when we become adults, does it? Marriage problems, Jesus! Single, you want to be married, Jesus! Rebellious kids, Jesus! And that statement is right. It is Jesus who heals marriages. It is Jesus who turns a rebellious child into a disciple of Christ. It is Jesus who either makes you able to be content in your singleness or brings you a spouse. It is Jesus. But if we just stop here, we oftentimes leave people in that kind of state of mind. Like, what do I do? Call out Jesus three times like Beetlejuice? And he appears. This section is crudel, but it's not the end. What happens to, with Jesus? Well, Jesus does what is impossible. In fact, Ma- Matthew 19, 26 says that, right? You got a teenager that's cutting themselves. You got a marriage that's falling apart. You got somebody who is controlled physiologically by alcohol because of the decisions that they have made. Look what Jesus can do. Look at verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. Let me just pause right here. I love the Greek. And listen, you don't have to be a seminary graduate to be able to understand the Greek. You can look at some great commentaries. You can get an interlinear Bible. If you want to just sit down with me, grab a coffee or lunch in an hour, I can give you some background on the Greek, and it will make it come alive to you. But what's awesome about this is it's a present participle. Nerd. Let me show you the significance of that. Verse 15 says, they saw the man who is demon-possessed. But look at the description. He was sitting there. He was clothed. And he was in his right mind. Was he demon-possessed at that point? No. But the people saw him as, that's the guy. That's the guy who is demon-possessed. But then when we get to verse 18, it says the one who had been demon-possessed. This is an heiress participle. It's showing that it's already taken place, his cleansing. Beloved, my point in sharing this with you is that it is Jesus that is the sanitizer cycle for your spiritual blowout. It absolutely is. It is only Jesus. And every time we open God's word, every time you hear the word of God preached, every time you are confronted by the Jesus of Scripture, that's, that's very important. It's not just the Jesus of your definitions. We'll see that here in just a minute. It's not just the Jesus of your expectations. It's the Jesus of Scripture that does not fit neatly into our boxes, does he? 
But when you are confronted with this Jesus, you are ready to be cleansed. And that brings us to the end of the sentence. No matter how unclean, Jesus can wash you clean. That is, number three, if you respond appropriately. I want to say this up front because you could very easily misunderstand the point of this last section of the story. The the response that cleansed the demon-possessed man was not in what we see here. It had already taken place. But what we see here is the evidence that he has been cleansed. I'll get to that here in just a minute. Three responses that are highlighted by the verb to beg. There are three instances of begging in this passage that show three different responses to the cleansings of Jesus. Number one, or A, some beg him or Jesus to conform. Some beg Jesus to conform. The demons knew who he was. They knew what he was offering. They knew him and they ascribed to him his title that he rightfully owned. But it says in verse 10, the spokesperson for the demons begged him to do something. Now, at this point, just imagine what he could do. He could beg Jesus for anything. I think at this point, the demon could have begged for Jesus to forgive him. Now, the whole theology of that would lead us to whether or not that would actually be given, but wouldn't that have been awesome? But he didn't beg him to forgive the demons. It says in verse 10, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. I think what he's talking about here is there are regions and realms where the demons can operate. And I think he was saying, don't send me to the abyss. Don't send me to the place where I will be locked up. I want to continue my agenda. And so he comes up with a solution. He says in verse verse 12, send us to the pigs. And there were pigs. This is an unclean group of animals according to the Mosaic law. And there are 2,000 of them, the text says, up on this hill. I'll show you a picture of where they think that this actually was. I actually took this in Israel when I was there. You can see down here on this stone in Hebrew, the guide said this is supposed to be the place of Mark chapter 5. I can't read it, but I took his word for it. And so I took this picture, which by the way, do you see that sign? Danger Mines. You don't want to go on the other side of that. But this is a steep slope. This is looking over to the west side. This is looking to the west region of Galilee. This is from the Decapolis where the, the Gentiles were. And these pigs would have had the demons get in them. And they race down the hill and they go into the water and they die. They drown. I think this is an illustration, beloved, that whenever you try to force Jesus to conform to your expectations, it does not work out well for you or for others. Would you hear that again? Whenever you try to force Jesus to conform to your expectations, it does not work out well for you or for others. Beloved, God will always be glorified. And you know what this did? This showed the people that were watching that something significant had happened. Here we have 2,000 pigs that are minding their own business. They're, They're feeding on the pastures. And they're out there, they're, they're wandering around, and all of a sudden, in, a, in an instant, they all uniformly run down the hill and are drowned and become floating corpses in the Sea of Galilee. This was evidence to the herdsmen and to all who were watching 
that this Jesus was someone different than any other human they had ever confronted. But the demons knew who Jesus was, and they begged him, but unfortunately they begged him to conform to their expectations. Didn't work out for them. Didn't work out for the pigs. Second group begs. Some beg him to clear out. Some beg him to clear out. Verse 14 says the herdsmen fled to the city and the country. They told everybody what happened. And verse 14 says they came to see. This is a verb that means to investigate. It's like if you're sitting home to this afternoon watching the royals beat up on my twins. And you hear boom. And all of a sudden, what are you going to do? You're going to go out and investigate. You're going to ask people that were there before you, what happened? How did it happen? What, what's going on? Does somebody need help? You're going to investigate. And that's what the crowd is doing. They're hearing that this 2,000 pig herd has rushed down. They're looking down and they can see the corpses. They look over and they see that guy, the guy that nobody had been able to control. And he's sitting there in his right mind and they're seeing all of this and they're seeing the herdsmen scratching their heads, wondering how they're going to be able to continue in their profession. And they realize something that every one of us have to come to grips with. And that is the path to cleansing through the gospel of Jesus Christ requires an invasion of our status quo. Would you write that down? We'll put it up on the screen. If you want cleansing through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it requires an invasion of your status quo. Your way of thinking, your way of speaking, your way of living, it invades all of that. It confronts all of that. You've gotten to a point in your life where you just think this is what it is. Nothing's going to change. Well, let your perspective change. That's what the gospel offers you. That's what Jesus offered this crowd that was amassing. And so they do. They respond. They beg him. Verse 18. What will they beg him? Verse 17. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. How tragic. And how even more tragic. Verse 18. He did. So some beg Jesus to conform, some beg Jesus to clear out because they want their status quo to stay the same. But see, some beg that they can linger. This third response is actually the evidence that this man has already been cleansed. It says in verse 18 that as Jesus was getting on the boat, the man who had been, this is recognizing that he is no longer possessed, begged him. Begged him what? that he might be with him. If you want to, flip back at chapter 3, verse 14. These are the disciples. Jesus is calling them to himself. Verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he had also named apostles, so that they might be with him. What this phrase is doing is saying that this man is requesting that Jesus make him an official disciple. Isn't that awesome? And from a seeker marketing perspective, we would say, yes, Adam. I mean, isn't this great Super Bowl ad? I mean, look at the man who was possessed. Nobody could control him. He's in his right mind. He's a Gentile. I mean, it checks all the marketing boxes, doesn't it? But look at how Jesus responds. He did not permit him. And we don't know why he didn't permit him. Maybe it was the fact that Jesus had a round number of 12. I think that's probably the reason. 
But Jesus had assembled 12 disciples because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And this was more imagery for the Jews of Jesus' day to see, oh, wait a minute. It's not ultimately about us as a nation. It's not ultimately about our history. It's not ultimately about the patriarchs. Actually, this is a a new understanding, a, a, a fully developed, a mature understanding that these 12 disciples show us that Jesus is the true Israel. I think it was that. But could it also have been that this boat only held a certain number and that this would have rocked the boat, pun intended? It also could have been that he wasn't ready for Gentiles to be part of his people. That would take place in Acts. Whatever the reason, Jesus says no. But listen, oftentimes the invasion of our status quo is simply an adjustment of the details. Would you write that down? Often the invasion of our status quo is simply an adjustment of the details. The principle will remain. He will let Jesus follow him, but just with different details. Look at what it says in verse 19. But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he did what Jesus expects of all of his disciples. Verse 20, he went away. And began to proclaim, which by the way, that word proclaim is keruso. It's the same term that is found in chapter 1, verse 14, to describe what Jesus was doing, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was proclaiming the gospel. He wasn't just sharing the historical account of his healing. He's showing how Jesus is Messiah, how Jesus can cleanse no matter how, clean, how unclean you are. He's proclaiming this by this term. That's what it's explaining. And then the response at the end of verse 20 is everyone marveled. Which, friends, that's where you and I are left at the end of every interaction we have with Christ. Every interaction that we have with Christ is an opportunity to marvel. There is nothing else this world offers like what Jesus offers. Nothing in this world satisfies. Nothing in this world aligns with a logic that the gospel uses. It is countercultural. It is counterhuman logic. It does not make sense to the only human mind. It is a spiritual reality. And we will be amazed when we interact with it. But how will you respond? Do you want it to conform to you? Do you want to hold it at arm's length? Or will you submit and surrender, giving evidence by the worship and the proclamation of the gospel that is characterized by your life?